2 Thessalonians 1, the last two weeks, we have been looking at uh, kind of laying the groundwork for this message. How should we, how should Oral Bible Church glorify Christ in this day and age? We looked the last two weeks at passages from Revelation primarily, and last week also in Micah chapter 4, at how God's plan for Christ being glorified in the future will involve first his judgments of every unbeliever on this planet in real time, in human history. Yes, it will happen in eternity in hell and the lake of fire, but it will also happen when his judgments, when Jesus unleashes, un- oh, breaks open the scrolls, causes the trumpets to sound, pours out the bowls of judgment. But it also will involve, not only will Jesus be glorified in the judgment of unbelievers, but he will be glorified in his worldwide rule of every aspect of human life. We looked at that last week, and it's hard to imagine, isn't it? No Satan, no demons. Every human being at the beginning of the kingdom is born again. Peace reigns. There will be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. It will be experienced in every level. It's just hard for us to grasp that. That's in the future. It will happen. What about now? What is God's plan now? Is it God's plan for us, Oral Bible Church, to unleash God's judgment upon wicked unbelievers? No, that's not our place, is it? Similarly, is it our role to bring in the kingdom, as it were? No, that's impossible too, isn't it? <laughs> because who's still prowling about? Who's still a roaring lion? You know, Jesus will do that. What is God's plan for this day and age then? Until Jesus does uh, bring glory to himself in judgment and in reigning. Well, his plan for this day and age is for, for us, his church, his bride, is to proclaim the good news that Christ died for sinners. We tell that to unbelievers. That's the main thing that we do. And when someone believes to immerse them and to add them to the church as a public testimony and so that they will continue to grow. And those believers who are added to the church, we have a responsibility to continue to teach them how much of what Jesus commanded, everything that he commanded, so that they will obey it. The church in our normal life, our normal worship, we exist to to learn from Christ and to labor for Christ. Uh, And we do that in and through our church body. Thessalonians here, this is a very young church, very young. Very young. This is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Yet, despite how young a church they were, Paul taught them truth about the end times. That sadly, too many churches and too many Christians, they kind of put off to the last, or they say, it doesn't really matter. But Paul taught them how Jesus will come to the clouds, will catch the church up to meet with them, and so they will forever be with the Lord. Paul taught them about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord 
involves, it begins with his judgment on the world, but it also involves his blessing when Christ reigns. It's a two-part thing. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Paul taught them about Christ's second coming. Paul taught them about Christ's coming kingdom. He taught them about the great apostasy that would happen at the beginning of the the tribulation time, that, that first seal that's open when the Antichrist comes in. He taught these new believers these things. And then he left there, left them in the hands of their, their spiritual leadership and one another because he said in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians, you are able to admonish and to edify each other. And then he went on and repeated the process, preached the gospel. When people trusted Christ, he, they immersed them in water and they formed them into a church. But he heard about troubles that this little church was having. They had some doubt, some concern that the day of Christ had already come. And so he wrote this letter of 2 Thessalonians to to calm those fears, to give them the truth. But he begins in chapter 1 with a thanksgiving, verses 3 through 10, and then a prayer, verses 11 to 12. This is what I want us to look at this morning so that we can learn how we must glorify Christ. Let's walk through his thanksgiving first. The thanksgiving that he gives for the Thessalonians' perseverance in the faith. Before I go through these points, let's just look at these points with me. He gave thanks that their faith kept growing and their love kept abounding. That they, number two, persevered in Christ, though suffering much. That their perseverance and persecution prove that God's judgments are always right. And the next two kind of flow from that, but I put them separate so that we can really look at them in detail. God's righteous judgment of unbelievers and then God's righteous judgment of believers. Let's look first at this first thing that Paul gave thanks for. Their faith kept growing and their love kept abounding. Look at how he words these things. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. Back in the day when I was somewhat athletic, I enjoyed playing basketball. I could run up and down the court. I can run up and down the court today one time. <coughs> and that's about all I could do, I'm afraid. This is something that wasn't just a one-time thing, that they grew in their faith and that was it. They loved each other and, and that was it. This is something they were doing now. It wasn't just a flash in the pan, a single appearance. If you want an example of what that would look like, you'd want to write down Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. One of those challenging passages in Hebrews, the warning passages, where he talks about those who at one time had enjoyed some of this and they experienced some of this, but the clear point of these doubting believers is that it was not a continual thing. That wasn't the case with these Thessalonians. It was continual. Their faith is growing. Their love's abounding. What is saving faith? Saving faith is receiving and resting in the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. Two important words there. Receiving, that means you're welcoming it. And resting, that means you're trusting him. So there's belief, there's submission, there's trust. 
These are the aspects of genuine saving faith. Saving faith is receiving the truth about Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the eternal incarnate son of God. He lived a God a, 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 a perfect life. He died for sinners as a substitute. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. But it's not just believing it, not just that, but it's also resting, depending, trusting, wholly, fully, and completely. But saving faith continually grows. Saving faith continually grows in knowledge. Saving faith continually grows in love for the Lord. Saving faith continually grows in submission. We should always be learning, loving, and living it out. What about love that they were abounding in? The love for each other, verse 3. Love is a holy affection. A holy affection that moves you to sacrificially give of yourself for the good of another without expecting anything in return. You're not doing it so that you can get something in return. It is a holy affection because, well, First John says, God is what? Love. It is an essential characteristic of who he is. And God is holy. His love runs on the train tracks of his holiness. And he gives, God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son. So that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, can love grow cold? It can, can't it? It can. Yesterday, uh, me and my family traveled out to, well, that stayed up north. Andy Rupert's not here. We went to Michigan. I feel safe in saying that. Uh, for the wedding of one of my nephews. You see my nephew and his bride-to-be, and it's just kind of sickening. You know, they're just kind of glowing. Oh, like that. That's not sickening. That's marvelous. That's wonderful, isn't it? I'm sure when a young fellow in our congregation here right now on June 4, June 3rd, when that time comes that uh, he's not just going to kind of look at her, hmm, there's going to be uh, a rapture, uh, an, uh, an affection that's there. So what happens after 20, 30, 40 years? Has our love grown cold? <laughs> well, I would like to say after 30, be 33 years here for Trish and I this coming June, uh, yeah, we might not have that pow, zap, spark, but I'm 53. I can't jump around like I was 20, you know, like I was then. It's a deeper love. I could say they don't have. So it goes both ways, okay? But can married couples, when they're first married, they have all kinds of zip, pow, wow, yeah. But then as the years progress, that love grows cold. Sadly, that's the case, isn't it? And it can happen with professing believers that we 
You remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2? That they what? Leave their first love? The Thessalonians had an abounding love for one another. It was growing. And Paul thanked the Lord for that. Number two, Paul thanked the Lord that they persevered in Christ, that they suffered much. Verse four, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endured. So they received the truth about Jesus. They rested in the truth about Jesus Christ. And how did unbelievers respond to that when they told people about it, when they lived it out? They're living different. How did unbelievers respond to that truth? They rejected it. Now, what did we learn a few weeks ago about how unbelievers will respond to believers during the tribulation time? They will hate them. They will betray them. Parents will betray their children. Children, their parents, they'll be openly beheaded and slain. Is that happening now? Well, here in Northeast Ohio. No, it's not. How should we respond? Thank you, Lord. But do unbelievers still welcome, open arms, believe everything that you say? Do they love how you're living overall? No. You have unbelievers in your home. You have unbelievers in your neighborhood. You have unbelievers that you uh, work with, go to school with. They might put it up with it, but don't talk to me anymore about that. The Spirit is there. All that's lacking is for them to give the opportunity to it, and that time will come that we looked at. And they were persecuting these Thessalonians. But in that persecution, and through that persecution, they stayed faithful to the Lord. That's what's meant by that word perseverance. They stayed faithful to the Lord. They were not moved from Christ. They were not moved from Christ to take the easier road. And that's what Satan wants to do through persecution, through pressure. He wants to get you, Christian, to don't be so Christian. Take the easier road. Fit into the mold of the world. And that's the idea of what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed, pressed into the mold of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you live a godly, Christ-like life. Paul thanked the Lord, number three, that their perseverance and persecution prove that God's judgments are always right. And as I said, verses 5 through 10, all has basically this idea. But we're going to crawl through it a bit more so that we can understand it, because it, it can get a little challenging. But remember, Paul's not giving a textbook here. What's he giving? He's giving thanks. He's giving thanks. Verse 5. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which also you suffer. Their perseverance and persecution proved that God's judgments are always right. It's showing that they were, here's the idea, they were qualified to enter into that kingdom. They were qualified to enter into that coming kingdom by how they responded now. When it says there they were counted worthy, it reminded me of in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, 
when how the apostles were beaten for testifying of Christ. And it says there that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Only those who are born again, only those who have true faith will enter the kingdom. And Paul's statement here, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, his statement here doesn't mean that they earned it. Because, well, we haven't suffered like that. Boy, we got to earn this somehow. How are we going to do that? It doesn't mean that, that they earned the right to be in the kingdom. How they responded shows the character, the, the quality of their faith. They loved the Lord, and when they went through this difficult time, they didn't fall away. That's what was going on with the people that the book of Hebrews was written to. They were being persecuted, and so they're being tempted to pull away. These Thessalonians kept going. They were faithful. They persevered. This is what true saving faith is. It's a continuing faith. It's a persevering faith. We need to apply it. You need to apply that. When you go through a challenging time, a trial, a difficulty, are you going to continue trusting the Lord through it? Or are you going to bail? You need to continue following the Lord. On the opposite side of true faith are the the citizens of the kingdom of darkness. How do citizens of the kingdom of darkness feel about citizens of the kingdom of light, that coming kingdom? Those who are in the darkness, they hate the light, don't they? They hate the light. And that is the response here. God only judges, in this sense, those who rebel against him. And the Thessalonians, they continued to believe instead of stop believing. And that proved, gave indisputable evidence that God would not judge them with this flaming judgment. But God would judge the unbelievers. Several times in scripture, God is described as the judge of this earth. We're going to look at one of the first occurrences of that in a little bit. Consider this question first. Does God always judge correctly? Does God ever make a mistake in his judgment? He always judges correctly, doesn't he? Hold your place here now and go with me. Beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 28, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. The Lord promised Abraham that he would have a son with Sarah. Remember how Sarah responded? She incredulously laughed. The Lord said, you are going to have a son. And then, in Genesis 18, the Lord told Abram that Abraham that he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. Look with me now at Genesis 18, verse 24. Abraham submissively but yet boldly says to the Lord, verse 24, Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. 
Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And so because he knew this of the Lord, he had boldness to say, Lord, if there are 50 righteous, will you destroy it? And what did the Lord say? I'll not destroy it. Bring it all the way down to 10. But yet what did the Lord do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He destroyed it. So what does that tell us about how many righteous were in there? Less than 10. How many righteous were there? One. Lot. Did God destroy Lot with the wicked? No. He mercifully plucked him out with his wife and his daughters. Because God, the God is the judge of the earth, will do right. Two Psalms, I'll have you write down for sake of time and not look at them, but Psalm 58 gives the same truth. Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. And then Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2. So Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. And then Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2. After you write those down, let's go to Isaiah chapter 3. We see the same idea, the same truth, that the God, the God, the judge of the earth, he will do right. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what Isaiah says here, what the Lord says through Isaiah. Isaiah 3, verses 10 to 11. The Lord says this. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. How will God, as it were, judge the righteous? He will give them according to the fruit of their doings. God will bless the righteous. How will God judge the wicked? He will give them according to their actions, won't they? From the reward of their hands, it shall be given him. Go back now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Your response to God's truth will be responded to by God with righteous judgment. So that brings us then to number 4. God's righteous judgment of unbelievers. Verses 6 through 9. Verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with retribution those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It says at the beginning of verse 6, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. What is righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? Righteous means that what God does, it perfectly aligns with his holy character. Everything he does perfectly aligns with his holy character. 
what he does is exactly how it should be done. How should God respond to those who hate him? To those who break his laws? To those who fall short of his glory? He will judge them. What's the evidence? Three pieces of evidence that we see here. Verse 6, they trouble you. They trouble you. Verse 8, they do not know God. And also in verse 8, they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't show love for believers. They trouble them. They don't respond to the Lord with love. They're ignorant of him, willingly so. And they will not submit to the gospel. They do not obey it. Now, there's something to keep in mind. If you're ever tempted to put a bumper sticker on the back of your your car, try Jesus. No. We are told, we are said, we see Paul's example. God now commands every man, all men to, to, to repent. Faith is commanded. Repentance is commanded. This is not something to try. Leave it up to your convenience. This is the eternal, infinite God who says to his rebellious creation, oh, you know, maybe you should try my son. No. Repent. Believe. Trust in him. That's the evidence. What will be their experience? How will God respond to them? Verse 6, he will repay them with tribulation. And then verse 8, flaming fire taking vengeance. And verse 9, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. The gospel's good news, isn't it? It is good news. Have you obeyed this good news? Are you happy in your sin? And you're rebelling against God. Or do you think that because you're here, or because you're dressed up, or because you got a great family, that you're okay with the Lord? No. You must trust in Christ. But we also see, number five, God's righteous judgment of believers. What's the evidence? Five points of evidence. Verse three, their faith grows exceedingly. Also in verse three, The love of every one of you abounds toward each other. How do you know if someone's a genuine believer? They not only believe it, but they show it. They have a love for one another. A third piece of evidence, verse 4. Patient endurance. Patient endurance in their persecutions. A fourth piece of evidence, verse 5. The kingdom of God for which you suffer. They willingly experience suffering now because they know what's coming. They're living by faith. They have a better city that they're looking for. Not one in this earth, but one coming from heaven. And a fifth piece of evidence, their testimony, verse 10. They believe the testimony. They believe the testimony of the gospel. And so what will they experience then? Verse 5, it says, they will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Remember last week, everything that we looked at about the kingdom. Well, I can't remember it all either. (laughs) That was quite a bit, wasn't there, that we looked at. 
Everyone on the face of the earth is going to love the Lord. Everyone is going to be learning about the Lord. Remember, the Gentiles are going to stream to Jerusalem. Let's go up and listen. They're going to take the hem of the garment of a Jew and follow along because the Lord is with them. They can't wait for that. And you and I, as Christ's bride, we won't just be there during that time. We will be reigning with him. The bride is not a servant. The bride is a co-ruler, and that's what the church, you, will be doing with him. But there's one other thing that we will experience in verse 7. To give you who are troubled rest. It can be very difficult to live for the Lord in this day and age. You'll be made fun of. You could lose your job. You might not have as uh, a high a position. If you want to go in the ministry, you might not experience all the fun things that, you know, more well-paid, compromising or apostate pastors might have. It's a struggle. Surprise, we live in a sin-cursed world. It's going to be a struggle. Surprise, we struggle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, don't we? It's hard, but there will come a time, Christian, when you will have rest. You will have rest way better than a Sunday afternoon nap because it will be a thorough rest, a complete rest. Your current trials, brothers and sisters in Christ, they are but a moment. Read 2 Corinthians 4 sometime. They are but a moment. Just a little bit right now. It seems like it's never ending. But what are a few decades compared to unending time? Paul thanked God that the Thessalonians, they grew in their faith. He thanked God that they abounded in love. He thanked God that they persevered through this trial. They lived in a Satan-hating and afflicting time. But they're not home yet, as it were. They're not home yet. Jesus is in heaven. He's not sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. Satan's still prowling about. They're not home yet. So while Paul thanked the Lord for what he saw, he then, number two, prays for them, verses 10 to 12. He prays that they will continue to persevere. And there are three specific requests that Paul has here. This is in the backside of your sheet. He prayed for three specific requests. Verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. The first prayer to God, that God, number one, will sanctify and preserve them. God will sanctify and preserve them. God will count you worthy of this calling. This is looking at salvation rightly as beginning with God with his calling them to salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah said from the belly of the whale, from beginning to end. This brings up the question, what is this calling? What is election? And it is sadly a divisive thing, but I've taught about it a fair amount here. And in fact, you might have a little booklet in your Bible called the Summary of Christian Faith 
You don't need to turn to it right now, but you could write down a couple points from there that I'll just give it to you and you can look them up. These are questions 66, 67, 68. 66. What is election? Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save some sinners through Jesus Christ. Way back, and as we say, eternity past. That's from our vantage point, okay? Well, what was that election based on? Was it my good looks? Was it the number of white hairs that I had? The number of grandkids that I currently have? My religious devotion? That's number 67. What's election based on? Election is based solely on God's grace and love and is according to his perfect will and good pleasure. Here's the key thing. Election is not based on faith. It results in faith. Because when God looked, as it were, down the corridors of time, what kind of individuals did he see? Did he see individuals who were half sinful and half righteous naturally? Kind of somewhat corrupted by sin? What did God see? He saw sinners thoroughly corrupted by sin who were his enemies who had no hope who would not seek him who hated him and God graciously chose to save some through Jesus Christ and that is also part of his infinite eternal plan the Lamb of God slain from when? the foundation of the world. It doesn't mean he's been dying for infinity. It just talks about the fact that that was God's infinite, perfect plan. How should we respond to the doctrine of election? This is number 68 in your little booklets. What's a right appreciation of the doctrine of election result in? It should cause believers great joy, faith in the Lord, humility, faithfulness, zealous labor, personal holiness, and confidence in evangelism. I wish I could walk through those right now, but there's scripture passages, look at them, and you'll see exactly what's being talked about. So when Paul says, praise here to the Lord, God, count them worthy of his calling, there's a couple scriptures that we can also look to in the New Testament to help us see what he's praying about. I'll just limit it to two, both from the book of Philippians. Philippians 1.6 Paul says, I know that my God, the, the, the work that he began in you, what will he do with it? He'll bring it to completion. Why is Paul bothering praying then? Because God works through means. He works through prayers of his people. He works through your encouragement. Another passage to write down in Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. You are in the Lord's hands, Christian. You're in his hands. And we have to pray, God, sanctify my brothers and sisters. Help them to keep going. Preserve them, Lord. How does the Lord do that? That's number two, the second prayer request. The rest of verse 11. Fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Believers will live a thoroughly 
Believers will live a thoroughly Christ-like life, fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Nothing less than this. Look at the two words there. Fulfill and all. You ever order something in multiple packages from Amazon and you only get three out of five things? Do you say, yeah, three out of five ain't bad. I'll be satisfied with that. No, what are you going to do? Unfortunately, you can't call them. Now, maybe you know a special number. I'd like to talk to you to get that number sometime. You're stuck with these chat bots. They aren't real. They're artificial. And it can take a lot of work through to get some of those back. Nothing less. Nothing less than living a thoroughly Christ-like life is what's involved here. The moment you get saved, that you're born again, God gives you new desires, a new nature, a new disposition. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that now you love the Lord. Is it a perfect love? Is is it a thorough love, I mean? No. It's going to take some time to, to grow in that love. But it is there. It is there. And you must do Philippians 2.12. I mentioned Philippians 2.13 a minute ago. It is he who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. But Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation. How? Fear and trembling. We also have this in the Old Testament. Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you a Lamborghini. No. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Well, it still sounds like I'm going to get my Lamborghini. No. How did it begin? How did it begin? Delight yourself in the Lord. That means you love what God loves, and you hate what God hates. Living a thoroughly Christ-like life means I want to love what Christ loves, think like Christ thinks, live like Christ lives, Nothing short, not three out of five packages, but fulfilling the order. What God intended. How's this worked out? This is the second phrase here. The work of faith with power, not human strategy or ingenuity, living by faith. The Lord says this, and you respond with obedience. You receive it, and you rest in it. You welcome it, and you obey it. And it's not with your own strength and enablement. It's walking by the Spirit. When you walk by the Spirit, He gives you the needed ability. That's the word power. Growing more like Christ, less like the world, by the what? The Spirit's help. The Spirit's help. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? That the Lord will sanctify and preserve saints as they live thoroughly Christ-like lives. That's verse 12. This is the reason. This is the aim, the purpose, the goal. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says here, the name of our Lord Jesus, it's not just talking about his actual letters that represent who he is. It's talking about everything about him. All he's known for. Nothing less. The Lord, 
He's your God. He's your master. Jesus, he's your savior. He's the one who died for your sins. We're going to remember his death this afternoon. He is Christ. It's not a last name. It's a title. He's the promised king of Israel. He's the Messiah. He's coming to reign. And he's the one that you're trusting in and relying on. Every aspect of your life shows this. Every nook and cranny points to Christ. Every aspect of your life, every nook and cranny magnifies. That's the idea here of glorify. It magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not mixed with impurity. It is fully, completely, wholly magnifying him, Christ's character and commands. And it is by his grace. Boy, which passage to write down here to point you to? There's a lot. One that's very similar that I will is Titus 2, 11 to 14. Titus 2, 11 to 14. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, you remember, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live zealously, holy lives, looking for the blessed hope. It's by God's grace, not our own merits, not our own strength, not our own works. Oral Bible Church, trusting Christ today, how should you live? What should you live for? I'm looking forward to when Christ reigns. Amen. But that's not here right now yet, is it? It's coming. It is coming. Until that time when Christ is fully, openly, and consciously glorified by every human being alive, how should you live? That's the pointer at the bottom of your sheet here. You must glorify Christ by living a thoroughly Christ-like life. That's our theme for this year. Glorifying Christ. How do you glorify Christ? Living a thoroughly Christ-like life. What do you do? You're living worthy of God's calling. You are living worthy of God's calling when you magnify Christ in your life. When you're with your family, you will magnify Christ. When can it be harder to live a Christ-glorifying life? With strangers or with your family? It can be harder with our family, isn't it? Who are we quicker to be sharp with, impatient with? Yet when we get out of our cars and we come to church, we all do this, don't we? Hi, glad to see you. And you're... Family looks at you and say, who's that guy? He was Mr. Grumple up on the way here. Suddenly he's joyful Christian, joyful Joe. How did that happen? Well, I'm walking in the spirit now. Why weren't you walking in the spirit in the car? I'm, the, I'm right with you there, okay? We've all done it, haven't we? But that's the point. We need to magnify Christ at all times. When you're with your neighbors, when you're at work, it is not a time where you can just push pause on magnifying Christ as you're doing your work and your attitude with your coworkers. When you're with your church body, you're weighing priorities. You know, what should I do? 
The only way, the only way to live in a sin-cursed world, the only way to live in a sin-cursed world is to live a thoroughly Christ-like life. That's the only way. It's been mentioned several times today. We do not experience the satanic attacks that the Thessalonians did. And we say, thank you, Lord. Does that mean we do not face satanic attacks? We face different satanic attacks. Like what? Ease. Prosperity. Pleasure. Pride. Self-gratification. Self-centeredness. My way or the highway. Do these come from God? No. Who do they come from? They come from Satan, don't they? It almost makes you want to say, I'd rather have persecution, doesn't it? It's hard to fight those longings of our heart when we've got everything out here and everyone out here doing the same thing. Satan wants you, Christian, to do things gently with your Christianity. He doesn't want you to be 100%. He doesn't want you to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness that he's started in you. He wants you to step back. He wants you to not be so thoroughly Christian. He wants you to be realistic. You know, there's nothing wrong with a little light worldliness. Be content you've done enough with regards to religion. Be happy with a little tack on Christianity. Are these not attacks of Satan that we must guard against? That Peter says wage war against our souls? Christian, Jesus died He shed his blood so that every part of your life would be 100% his. You are not your own. You were what? Bought with a a price. That means your mind. And so Philippians 4, 8, and 9, what are we supposed to think on? What are we supposed to love? How are we supposed to live? It should even affect what we look like who we consider close friends and acquaintances, it does matter. We must be 100% for Christ. So think about your mind. Think about your clock, your time. Think about if you're retired, what you do with your retirement, your appearance, your parenting, your times to rest and to recharge. We need that, don't we? These bodies get tired. We need to rest and recharge but that shouldn't be what we live for. If you're schooling or work, everything, it doesn't matter, must be 100% for Christ. Christian, God's given you a new nature and the spirit, new desires. How are you strengthening those? How are you improving those? We need to strive for that. On a point of encouragement, Paul prays, these things, and we should pray for this for each other. And the fact that he prays this means this is God's will. 
He gives us the provision to that. You know what that means? You can be bringing every aspect of your life now to glorify Christ. That is good news. You don't have it in yourself. The Lord's provided it all. He's given you all the the tools you need. The word, the spirit indwelling you, your church body. You can do it now. And so don't make provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Redeem the time. You can be glorifying Christ now. And we must be doing that, magnifying him so that people see who Jesus is. Who he is. Right now, while sin's curse causes everything to groan, while Satan prowls about and rules humanity, while the spirit of Antichrist permeates the religious world, and Christ doesn't sit on the throne from Jerusalem right now, glorify Christ by living a thoroughly Christ-like life. Paul prayed these three things for these believers. These would be three good prayer requests for us to be praying for each other. So I put it on the front of your daily devotional. Memorize it. So that it becomes part of your praying for each other. Lord, the work that you began in them, my brothers and sisters, bring it to completion. Lord, help my brothers and sisters to live a thoroughly Christ-like life. Lord, help us to magnify as a result of this. Be magnifying Christ in every aspect, every nook and cranny, every minute of our lives as Christians. For your glory, Lord Jesus.